0: Uh, this morning we're looking at Genesis 17, which is the covenant, God's covenant with Abraham. This is really a kind of a monumental moment in the life of Abraham, the life of God's people, and, and really the life uh, in the history of the, of, of the world. So let's read together Genesis chapter 17. This is God's word to you because you're his people and because he loves you. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall... Not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she'll be, she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, ...whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house... ...or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house... ...and he circumcised circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day... ...as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin... ...and Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin... That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. A lot of circumcising going on in uh in this chapter uh, let's let's pray together Our Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. we thank you that uh, You are a God who makes promises. And we thank you that our our whole faith, our whole spiritual life is not dependent on our performance, our pursuing of you, but our whole spiritual life is based on resting in your promises, and the promises especially that have been fulfilled for us in Jesus. We ask that you would build our faith as we read about your covenant, that uh, you would use your word to increase our faith, that we would trust in you more, that we would rejoice in you more in all that you've done for us in Jesus. And I just pray that you'd also use these words that they would uh, work in our hearts, that 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 joy would cause us to love each other, to serve one another, that we would become uh, the people uh, that you intend us to be uh, by your work, by your grace, by your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So um, I've been reading... Uh, John Krakauer's uh, book *Into the Wild*. Some of you will probably have read that book or seen the movie that came out uh, a few years ago, and uh, it's uh, it's actually a true story about a guy named Christopher McCandless who uh, he was in his young uh, he was in his early 20s. He uh, graduated from Emory uh, University and. Uh, Right after graduation, uh, you know, his his parents had big plans for him to go to law school, and and basically he disappeared. And he took his $25,000 in savings that he had, and he uh, donated all the charity, and he unannounced just disappeared. And he basically went by himself, traveled up into the middle of Alaska, and uh, spent almost four months in the middle of Alaska. And he found some uh, deserted bus. And, you know, he'd been reading Jack London, uh, Call of the Wild, and he wanted to live out Jack, you know, Jack London's stories. And so he went up there and he actually, he ate some poisonous berries and ended up uh, dying by himself uh, in this bus. And he was found, I think, 17 days later by some hunters who were who were uh, coming by and, and found him in the bus. And uh, this is kind of the story of his travels up uh, into Alaska And uh, the big portion of the book follows him traveling throughout the country. You know, he goes up to Montana. He's down in Arizona. He's over in Washington and California. And he's meeting all kinds of people along the way. And one of the the, uh, men that he meets in the book, uh, the book names him Ron Franz, who's an older guy um, who I I think McCandless lives near him or gets a ride with him. I can't really remember how they met. But this uh, this older man is really kind of... um, captivated by McCandless is this young spirit who's adventurous and he's breaking the norms and he's getting out and he's uh, and they they build this relationship with one another and um, and throughout the time that uh, you know McCandless is with him McCandless keeps telling him I'm going to Alaska and I'm going alone I want I, I don't want human relationships I want to be alone in the wild and I want to experience the wild he has this kind of romanticized vision of being alone up in the wilderness of Alaska and uh, right." Uh, at the end of his stay with Ron Franz, who's this older guy? Ron Franz kind of goes out on a limb, and he just loves this young kid. And he says, I, uh, "You know, my uh, my parents. I was an only child, and my only son is is died. And so I, I'm the end of my family line. There's not going to be a family line." And he had known that that uh, McCandless was kind of running away from his family. He said, "What would you think about if I adopted you, and you could be, become my..." Son. And then I could have a, a line that will continue after me. It's kind of this risk to go out and solidify their relationship with one another. And McCandless kind of freaks out. He changes the subject. He's like, oh, we'll talk about it when I get back from Alaska. <laughs> when we go to Alaska, we'll talk about it. And this is what Krakauer says about McCandless uh, right after that. He says, McCandless was thrilled to be on his way north, and he was relieved as well. Relieved that he had again evaded the impending threat of human intimacy, of friendship, and all the messy emotional baggage that comes with it. He had fled the claustrophobic confines of family. He would successfully kept Jan Burrs and Wayne Westerberg, a couple other friends that he'd met, he'd kept them at, at arm's length, flitting out of their lives before anything was expected of him. And now he'd slipped painlessly out of Ron Franz's life as well. So here's this young guy. He wants to go be alone in Alaska. And to him, human intimacy, uh, being intimate, is a threat to his life. And what's interesting, if you've read the book or seen the movie, you'll, you'll know that uh, when McCandless finally gets to Alaska, and he spent four months in Alaska, in, in the, that romantic place, and uh, he's having trouble finding food, and he actually he eats some poisonous berries that, that cause him to starve to death. <laughs> And he's starving to death alone in this bus. And uh, we have, you know, his journals were found. And one of his last statements that he wrote in one of his books is that happiness is only real when it's shared. Happiness is only real when it's shared. So those are his, his closing revelation while he's alone. I mean, it's very tragic is that happiness is only real when it's shared. And, um, and the reality is that love is a threat. Love is an inv- it's intrusion into our lives. It's an intrusion into our freedom. And what when uh, love comes into our life, it demands of us a loss of freedom. That's what he didn't want. He didn't want to lose his freedom. Any bond with any people was going to cause him to lose his freedom. And yet at the same time, we know that deep happiness only... <laughs> I mean, we know that only comes from love... We know that we only actually really become ourselves. We only really become free when, when we give up our freedom and, and we're willing to love someone and be close to someone, right? You, you have to lose your freedom in order to gain your freedom, right? And uh, actually, I remember, you know, when Shannon and I were first dating and uh, we were 18, we were very giddy and happy. And, um, I, you know, early on, I, I, I remember I asked her, I said, you know, when do you think you know that you love someone, right, she's getting embarrassed now, I'm sharing, so uh, you know, when do you, when do you know that you love someone, and you know, I was looking for like a logical uh, conversation to have about um, how, so we could really define this, and I thought it was going to be very controlled, and all of a sudden she says, well, I think I love you, it was like, all of a sudden a rush of, of powerlessness, I fell out of control, and yet also a rush of deep pleasure, right, (laughs) <laughs> and, but you know what, what happened what happened right then is our relationship changed, all of a sudden there became, a, it, we're saying we want a sense of permanence with one another of course marriage is ultimately that way, where we say, uh, you know, when you, marriage is, is so reckless I mean, have you ever thought of that, you get up and you say through sickness and health, forever and ever good or poor, rich, uh, richer or poorer, whatever it is, I'm going to be with you no matter what I mean, that is a radical loss of freedom. I, I can't do whatever I want. I can't teach you. I have to be with you for decades and decades and decades. I mean, that's so reckless, right? I mean, just you're going to just say that in one day, right? It's terribly reckless. It's a huge loss of freedom. And let me just uh, say that um, these things, adopting someone, asking someone if if they could be your son, saying I love you to someone, getting married what all of these things are is what the Bible calls covenantal acts they're acts of covenanting where we say I want to lose my freedom so that I can have you, that's what a covenant is, is I'm going to give myself to you and I'm going to actually demand of you love back so that I can have you And um, I'll tell you that the God who haunts us through every page of the Bible is a covenant-making God. He is constantly making covenants. And that here's God who comes to, you know, Abraham, who's such a roller coaster. He's up and down, and he's, uh, he's sinning, and he's being faithless, and he's disobeying God. And God says to him, I will be your God. God wants the claustrophobia. He wants that claustrophobia of saying, I'm going to have to take care of you no matter what. I'm going to have to be there for you no matter what. I want to lose my freedom so that I can have you. And, you know, when we, you hear this a lot in, uh, in the church about that being a Christian means having a relationship with God, which is kind of, which is very true, um, but it's kind of vague. The Bible never uses that word relationship. The word that the Bible uses to define our relationship with God is a covenant. It is God saying, I want to lose my freedom because I want to have you. And so what we're going to do this morning is it's very powerful when God does that. You know that it's very powerful when a human does that. When a person does that to us, it changes our lives. It you know, wonderful things happen. Wonderful things happen when God does that. And here we are in Genesis 17, and God is making a covenant. This is... um, you know, I should say this. Most of the Bible, one way that you could summarize what most of the Bible is about is, is something called the covenant of grace. There, there's all these covenants throughout the Bible, but they're really all about one covenant, a covenant of grace, where God is reconciling a people to himself to be his own, that he's rescuing and saving. And so here's really the beginning is with Abraham is where we see the beginnings of that covenant. So what I want to do is we uh, look at this passage together as I just want to answer three questions. What does God promise in this covenant? What is it? Uh, What is he saying I'm going to give? You know, when God gives himself to Abraham and gives himself to a people, uh, what does he promise to do? Second, how is it fulfilled? Interesting things here uh, that we'll get back to the circumcising that was going on there at the end. A lot of circumcising going on. We'll, We'll get to that. And lastly, what does it do to us? When you come into that kind of relationship and God says, I want to lose my freedom to bind myself to you, what does that do to you? What kind of person does that make you into? So those are the three things we're going to look at. And I hope uh, as we do that we'll see just how beautiful God is, the God that we meet in the Bible. So, first, what does God promise in the covenant? And uh, the way I see it, I see essentially three things that God's promising in this passage. I'm I'm going to spend quite a lot of time on this. Um, First, he's promising a people Second, land. And third, himself. God is promising himself. Okay? People, land, and himself. So first, people. And, uh, you know, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, you know, Abraham, you're not enough. I want nations. You know, he starts talking about nations and kings. I want a whole mass of people. One person is not enough. I need a whole people. And this is what he says, verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Now this is the the, um, the beginning of what will become the chosen people. You know, in the Old Testament, there's Israel who are the chosen people. But one of the things that we find out in the Bible is that the children of Abraham, to be one of Abraham's descendants you know, you know nations will come from you is what he says it doesn't just mean that you're one of his uh, biological descendants but Abraham's children are the people who have the faith of Abraham and so that, that's us Right? It's, it's, it turns out it 's much broader than just Israel as, as many people will come and believe in abraham 's God, they become a part of his family, and so God is gathering all kinds of people and god says i 'm going to promise to gather all kinds of people, nations, kings, and you know we see that now. I mean we have the benefit that uh, abraham didn 't see. We can look and we see in every nation there are Christians that are worshiping God and loving him, and the gospel is spread uh, to all ethnic groups and continents and uh, and so God is making this giant family where he 's bringing, bringing people in. And so what we have to see um, is that when Abraham's placing his covenant love on Abraham, it's not just on Abraham, it's on us too. These promises are for us. And I think it's, it's, there's some surprising, you know, who's included in the people? Who's in, included in the people that uh, God is promising to Abraham? I think that there's in, some interesting uh, inclusions. The first thing that is included, the first group of people that are included are children. Now look again at what it says in verse 11. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So he says, uh, I'm going to give you a sign of the covenant I'm making with you. Uh, it's circumcision, is a mark of it. And then he goes on to say, He who is eight days old among you shall also be circumcised. And so Abraham has this spiritual... Um, Relationship with God, yet he says, this relationship is also for your children. You know, I'm going to make you into a people and your children are included in the people of God. And this is, as you read throughout the whole Bible, you find out that when someone is a Christian, when someone trusts in God and they believe in God, God regards their children as his people too. There's a tremendous amount of hope in that. You know, uh, this was a big hope for Shannon and I actually when we were starting a family. As we, as we uh, you know, God rescued me, God intruded into my life and uh come and rescue came and rescued me and poured his grace out into my life and it turns out that he doesn't want the grace to just stop with me he wants his grace to run in the lines of generations and that's in in the people of god it's it's woven in there right at the beginning as soon as he says i'm going to give you the the sign of of covenant it's going to be to your children too and what that means you know you see all these kids running around here uh God regards them as part of this community, as part of the people of God, as part of his family. And that's, a, that's their identity. They, that's a great privilege to them that they get to grow up understanding that I'm one of God's people and that I have the promises. The promises are for me as well. God's bound himself to me. God's promised himself to me. And so uh, first group that's included, not just adults, not just people who are old enough to have sophisticated... sophisticated sophisticated conversations about God and spirituality, but children are to grow up knowing that God loves them, okay? Second group of people that uh, are included are outsiders. You know, uh, many many people think that the whole idea of uh, chosen people, you know, that God chose this one people is, just creates a sense of superiority, you know, like, oh, we're the chosen people, and uh, you're all a bunch of dirty pagans, you're the outsiders, you're the people that God has rejected, we're the people that he loves. You know, actually, one of the, uh, if, you've, if you've read the Harry Potter series, that, that's one of the main storylines that's getting played on in Harry Potter, is there's the pure-blooded wizards, and then there's the, the mixed-blood uh, um, uh, humans, you know, human wizards, or whatever they are, I don't, I don't know. And one of the big storylines is that the evil people want pure-blooded ethnic group who are kind of the chosen people. And uh, the storyline is, you know, Harry Potter is kind of bridging them and mixing them together and stuff like that. And what, and that's, one of the, what that's a play on is that in our, that, that's one of the big problems that people have with Christianity and religion is he says that what religions do is they create chosen people. And so there's a group of people that think they are superior to everyone else because they're the ones that God has chosen and uh, that God loves and God's rejecting everyone else. Here we have God promising to Abraham a chosen people and look what he does. Uh, In verse 12, God says to Abraham, Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. And from the outset, God is saying, listen, I'm not I'm not choosing your ethnic group to be superior to everyone else. This is an open community. And when someone comes in contact with you and builds a relationship with you, they come into your house. They work for you. The covenant is open to them too, and I want you to include them. And he's commanded to include them, and so the co- the chosen people from the beginning was never an inclusive or exclusive group. It was always inclusive, and that's one of the things. Of course, you know, for us as a church, and I think we do ha- we have to rem- remember that in our church. You know, we're we're a church. We're a church plant. And we're in a transitional period uh, right now that some of you are feeling. You know, some of you have been with us for, for a long time. You know, we started in our living room, uh, just a few of us. And, it, you know, it definitely, it, our church had a family feel. Uh, you knew everyone there. You knew everyone's name. You knew the story about everyone there. And as our church grows, there, you lose some of that. And because now most of you probably don't know everyone who's sitting here. You probably don't. Uh, There's there's a growing sense of, of, I don't know everyone who's here. And we could miss that sense of like, wow, I want to be the family. I want to be tight-knit. I want everyone together. But listen, the the chosen community, God's people, is always inclusive. It's always inviting people in. And from the very beginning, God is saying to Abraham, I don't just want your children, your ethnic group in. When someone comes into your family, into your household, and they're they're a foreigner, you treat them as part of the people of God. You welcome them you give them the promises. That's amazing, right here in the beginning. So surprising. Not, an, not a, an exclusive ethnic group, not an exclusive chosen people, but an open chosen people, okay? So the third, so, that, so children included, outsiders are included, who come in and are, are coming into the people of God. The third group that's included are slaves. You notice that in verse 12 as well, that, uh, the, you know, people... Um, whether born in your house or bought with your money, so you know uh, if, if Abraham has sl- slaves, he's supposed to um, circumcise them. Now, um, yeah, that, that's another criticism that a lot of people have against the Bible. It's, it's very common. If you read it, if you ever read a book written by an atheist, they will um, they'll find there are some obscure verses in Leviticus about how to about legislation of. You know, how do you deal with slaves and things like that? And you see, see look, the Bible endorses slavery. I mean, how can you say this is God's, God's book? Even though the main storyline of the Bible is about God rescuing a whole nation of slaves out of Egypt, there's a whole nation of slaves. I mean, if there's one thing you could say about God is he's a liberator of slaves. And, uh, and yet what you have even here, where, you, where that catches us off of guard, we're like, why does Abraham have slaves? But what does God say to him? Circumcise him. And that, you know, you might say, well, that doesn't sound very nice. What, uh, you know, what's the deal with that? What it's saying is he's your brother. Put the mark of my promises of being one of God's people onto your slave. And I'll tell you what, this little act where this has been true in the, this is true in the Old Testament. It was very true in the early church is where slaves and masters were all of a sudden, they were circumcised in the the Old Testament. In the New Testament, they were both baptized. And all of a sudden, slaves and masters had to start calling their slaves brother. And outside in the world, they might have had social strata that were on different levels. And all of a sudden, they came into this church, and you know, into a church. And they started worshiping together. And the levels were changed. You are brothers. You are on the same level. And let me just tell you, that little seed that God is putting into this covenant is what has ended slavery. If there is an end to slavery in the world... It it is really Christianity has led the way in ending slavery. And so that you look, you know, a lot of people, uh, I just, let me just say a few words about this. A lot of people will say um, that basically the thousand years after the fall of the Roman Empire kind of often referred to as the Dark Ages, you know, where Europe kind of fractured into these small feudal states. And, um, and a lot of scholars will look back and they'll say, you know, look at the Roman Empire. They had these big monuments and, and uh, you know, these coliseums and all this rich culture. And then in the Dark Ages, there's none of that. There's none of these big colosseums. Do you know why that is? Christianity was ending slavery. How were those colosseums built? It was by um, kings enslaving people and having slaves. And it sounds like, wow, that's rich culture, rich artistry. It was, sl- it was, it was rich kings enslaving people. And all of a sudden, Christians were saying to kings, "If you're going to get baptized, you need to understand that those any of those slaves are baptized, they're your brother. They're on the same level as you. And you have actually into the ninth century. I just read this in a in a book by Rodney Stark, who is a, a historian at UW. Uh, for about 30 years, he said that in, within the eighth century, Christianity had eliminated slavery—pure slavery—in Europe. I mean, they had serfdoms, and and you know they didn't have freedom in the sense that we have it. But Christianity was ending slavery, and uh, and you see that, of course, you know William Wil- Wilberforce. If you know the story of him, he he led the uh, abolition movement in England. And what it is is God's making a, a, a people where He's inviting outsiders. So he's saying to Abraham, who's a sinner, you're, you're one of my people. So um, th- there's the moral walls of separation he's b- breaking down. The, um, the ethnic walls of separation, you know, where there's people who are different, foreigners, he's breaking that down. And social walls of separation he's breaking down. And he's making, um, when God gives his covenant to a people, he brings all kinds of people together into a, into a family. And that's what God's doing here. You know, uh, some of you have felt that. When you come here, there, there's people that you're going to talk to after church, or there's people in your home group that you never would have been friends with. You know, they might, maybe they're educated and uneducated, or you're educated and they're uneducated, or, uh, the, um, you know, maybe they're a different, different age than you are. Uh, there's all kinds of people that we would have never had relationships with, and all of a sudden we become brothers and sisters. That's what God does uh, when God starts... Making covenant promises, he makes a people, He makes communities like that. So the first thing that God promises, sorry, that's the first subpoint, sorry, of, uh, um, is he makes a people. But the second thing that God promises, uh, is not just a people to Abraham, but he also promises a land. And uh, you can see that there in, in verse eight, "And I will give to you and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. So throughout the the the, the Old Testament, there's this promise of God's people moving into a land, and, and the land has this very Edenic feel to it. It's uh, you know there's orchards, and you know you're having babies, and there's sheep, and it's a very uh, fruitful, productive life of living in God's earth. And um, you know, I, I'll tell you when it, when I first began reading the Bible, I, I I never understood the land. You know, what's the big deal about the land? Because I, I, at least for me, when I became a Christian, I first started reading the Bible, I started in the Gospels. And I, I would read in John, and Jesus says, if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. I was like, wow, if you believe in God, if you have a relationship with God, you get to live forever. And then I went back and I started reading the Old Testament, and there was nothing about eternal life. It was all about the land and, you know, sheep and stuff this compare? I mean, Jesus is saying, you're going to have billions and billions of years with me living forever in the presence of God, and here there's just this piece of land. This doesn't even compare what's the deal here. I'll tell you the problem was because I was reading the Bible backwards, right? The Old Testament doesn't come before the Old Testament. You're supposed to read the Old Testament first. And what it gives us a picture of what God intends for human life. And what the... the us is that human life is about dirt. We've been made out of dirt. We're earth people, okay? We are not um souls that float off to heaven. We have bodies. To be a human means you're a soul and body together and you gotta live in the land, you know you gotta uh you know, I just uh <laughs> was gonna shiz with you I we just found out this weekend that our chickens were killed by raccoons. Uh last night, and the night before it was very sad. I, I assume it said because it, now I'm gonna be all sad. Um, uh, but you know what, being human means having chickens, you know, in, 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 when, and what I pictured what I pictured in the New Testament when Jesus says you're going to have everlasting, you know, eternal life, I thought I was going to kind of float off into the, uh, you know, and <laughs> I'm kind of vapory and I'm playing a harp and I'm singing somewhere, and then, that's why God doesn't, that's why God gives us the Old Testament first, he says, Gardens, orchards, chickens, uh, deltoids, guts, you know, ears, um, body, right? You know, you need, that's what a human is. And that's why I want to live with you is in the land. And so the promise is I want, I, I want to live with you in the land. And, um, and what that means is that when we come to the New Testament and when God's promising land, 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 I'm going to be with you in the land, and then we come to the New Testament and we say, what does salvation mean? we find out that salvation is not my soul floating off to the netherworld and kind of a, you know, an evacuation from the earth. The land, uh, salvation is God restoring all things in the earth because Jesus, Jesus' body was raised from the dead. Not just his soul, Jesus' body was raised from the dead. And the promise of the New Testament is that what God did for Jesus, what bo- did for Jesus, he's going to do for us. And that it's not that we're going to go to heaven, but that heaven is going to come here. And that heaven and earth are going to become one place. And we're going to live in the land. And we find out in the New Testament that this promise, it wasn't just the land God was promising Abraham. Because what does Jesus say? Blessed are the, are, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are going to inherit the earth. And let me just tell you, that's what the promise is of our life, is that I'm going to live in a body Flesh and blood, with my nerves and my ears and my eyeballs and my taste buds and my smell, and I'm going to live in God's presence in full embodied human. And that's what He's promising in the land is that the land matters. You are a physical person; the physical part matters. And let me just say, you know, uh, if anyone's here and you say, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if I believe in Christianity. I'm not sure, I, I, you know, I believe in the gospel of Jesus' body coming back to life. Uh, you know, God raising our bodies up and we're living in our bodies forever and ever and ever. You know, that seems too much for me. If, let me just say that if you don't believe it, it should, that should make you weep. Because if it's really true that there is a good, all-powerful God in the world and he's going to bring healing into the world, it's going to include healing in my body. It's going to look like me living in God's good green earth and ever, and ever, and ever in his presence. That's what healing would be. Healing would not be sucking me up uh, as a a vapor into the netherworld, okay? Healing would be a healing of this world and my body here. And that's what our hope is. You know, when we die, certainly our souls go to be with God, but that's not our salvation. Our salvation is at the end of all things when God raises up and we live with him in the earth uh, for endless ages. So let me just tell you, that's the promise of the gospel. And if it's not... it's at least deeply beautiful. It is the, it, it's at least our wildest dreams. And that's what God... So here, God's, when God starts making covenants, first, there's a people where he's drawing all kinds of people together. Outsiders, children, slaves. Everyone's coming together. He's giving these wildest of living in the land. The third thing that God promises, this is the most important, is that God promises us himself. You see that at the end of verse 8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of their sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. I will be their God. There's, There's the marriage vow, right? He's making a marriage vow. I will be your God. I want to lose my freedom to be stuck with you. That's what he's saying to Abraham. And, you know, that's kind of the difference between a covenant and a contract, you know, covenants and contracts are kind of similar because they're both, you're you're making promises to one another. Like, for example, we, uh, this portable in the back of our building got flooded last year. And uh, I've been talking with a contractor who's going to come and, you know, fix it up and get it going again. And, you know, he's a great guy, you know. Lee Wiebe is, I've liked working with him. But, you know, at the end of the day, my hope in the contract is not him you know my reward is not lee weeby you know Uh, as good of a guy as he is the reward's like i want to we're gonna have a new portable right it's it's a contract is not personal like that in a covenant the reward is the person and what god's promising to us most of all is himself and you know what god's reward in the covenant is do you know what he gets out of it you you're his reward That's what he gets out of the covenant. He gets you. And let me just tell you, I I do think that it's a good thing, you know, um, for us, all of us, whether you've been in the church your whole life or you've come to church recently, is you ask yourself, am I a Christian? You know, how do I decide, do I really have faith? Has God really uh, um, given me new life? You know, you can't look at, do I sin? Because you're going to sin your whole life. Whether you're a Christian or not, Christians sin their whole life and they sin every day. There's a, one of the questions you can ask is at the very bottom of who I am, under my sin, even though I don't live this way every day, would I really want to be with God forever? If I could be free from sin and I could be with Him and be in His presence, would that um, would that be a reward enough? If I lost everything else but could have that, would I want that? And that gives a sense to your heart of. Uh, he's what I want. Now, do I live that way? Do I go after other things? You know, throughout my week, yes. Yes, all those things happen. But underneath all of that, what do I really want? Do I want to be with him? If I could, could I? And uh, that's an indication of faith. And so here we have, look at how big this covenant is. God is entering into a promise uh, with Abraham, and he's saying, I'm going to bring all kinds of people from all kinds of nations, and I'm going to make a giant family, and I'm going to give them not just, actually not just this land, it's going to be the whole earth, and they're going to live with me, and I'm going to give myself to them, because I want them. This beautiful picture of what God's promising, it's huge, okay? Now, that was my first point. The the next two, (laughs) my next two are shorter, okay? (laughs) So, what did God promise people land? himself second how is it fulfilled okay stay with me here right and I think uh, what we see in this chapter is that there's two means by which God is going to bring his promises to Abraham and to us I think first through a promised son and second through blood through a promised son and through blood so you can see uh, in verse 15 and God said to Abraham so, first, a promised son. I'm just going to say a few words about this. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. And uh, uh, also in verse 18, uh, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And. Um, The promises uh, that God is giving, he says, the primary way that they're going to come to you is through uh, a son that I'm going to give to you through Sarah. And uh, so that, you know, Sarah is going to have kind of a miraculous... Bir- uh, she's not going to have a birth, she's going mirac- to miraculously get pregnant because uh, she's 90 years old. Here's this old woman, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, she's going to get pregnant. She's going to have a baby. An old, 90-year-old woman's going to have a baby. And uh, and through her, that's where a people is going to come out of you. And that people is going to go live in this land. But one of the things you see is that Isaac doesn't really fulfill all these promises. I mean, uh, Isaac... Uh, Abraham's kind of descendants, uh, biological descendants. But he can't bring all nations and people into this covenant people, right? And uh, you know, and Isaac uh, can lead the people into the land. He can live in, live in the land. But he can't uh, cause them to live in the land forever and ever as an eternal possession is what God has promised. And that's because Isaac is just a small picture of the greater Isaac who's going to come later. There's a greater Isaac who's going to have an even more miraculous birth. Who's not going to be just born to a 90-year-old woman, but he's going to be born to a virgin. And, uh, and he's actually going to gather people from all nations. And he is going to give them eternal life to actually live not just in the land of Canaan, but in the whole earth. And that's Jesus. And so how is this promise fulfilled? It is through the promised son. In the, the, the yearning that this passage gives us is a, is a looking forward to a promised son will bring about these promises, and the the promised son is Jesus. But we also see that it's going to come through blood. Now, if up to this point in this series since we started in in September, if you have not been impressed with Abraham yet, if if he uh, hasn't won your heart, I'm just going to read one verse, and I'm going to let him win you over, okay? Verse 24, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Wrinkly wrinkly old Abraham is God says you gotta have operation. You know, he didn't get numbed up. He didn't he took it like a champ, okay? That ninety-nine years old. That really happened. Abraham really did that. Okay? That's that's impressive. And uh, you know, I'll tell you, in, in almost every culture in history, in almost every culture in history, male uh parts, can I say uh Forgive me. The text led me here. So male parts have always been a symbol of domination. They've always been a picture of being in control. And what's interesting about, you know, male parts is that they're also, you know, very hidden sensitive part. They're, they're the most sensitive, you know, if you've ever been kicked in the st- stuff, guys. You're, it's very sensitive, right? So it's a very strange thing that it's a symbol of domination, yet it's a hidden, very sensitive part. And... Um, what we find out later um, in Deuteronomy is that this act of circumcision is kind of a picture of actually what of, of what happens in our hearts. Because in Deuteronomy it says it's not you're not just supposed to be physically circumcised, but you need to have your heart circumcised. And what that means is that there is something in our hearts that longs for domination and for control. We want to be in control. And it is that longing for domination and control that sees God's love to us as a threat. And we say, I don't, I don't want you taking away my freedom. I don't want to enter into covenant with you. I don't want to enter into love. I don't want the chance of losing my freedom. I want to remain in control. And what God is saying is that that part of us needs to die. It needs to be cut out. It needs to be, the blood needs to be shed. And what's very interesting is that as you read through the Bible... The New Testament tells us, uh, and and, you know, that part of our heart is sin, right? It's a part of our nature that says, I don't want God in my life. I want God at arm's length, and I want to be my own person. And we keep God at arm's length. That's sin. And the New Testament tells us that when Jesus came and he died on the cross, he became sin for us. He became that part of our hearts that needed to die, and he was crucified and it was killed. And Jesus is our circumcision. You know, I, I often I'll be talking with my kids about sin or, you know, if we're having a conversation and, and I'm saying, you know, there's something in you that you can't, you can't get that out of your heart. You know, if you disobeyed or you're mean to your, to your sibling or something like that, it just came out of you. You couldn't even help it. And, uh, and who's the only one who can take that out of your heart? And they say, Jesus is. And I say, what, what, what did Jesus do with your sin? And they say, he killed it on the cross. And that's what, when Jesus died on the cross, that part of us that needed to die died with him. And so the fulfillment of this covenant, the thing that is keeping us from drawing near to God, the thing that we need, we need a promised son, and we need the blood shed, and it was the blood was shed in Jesus. Jesus was the promised son. You know, actually, in the Old Testament, the sign of being in the covenant was circumcision. What's the sign in the New, New Testament? It's baptism. There's no more blood being shed. Right? The blood's already been shed in Jesus. So we don't, so, so we don't have a sign that in, 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 involves shedding blood. And so it is through Jesus. All these promises come to us when we come to Jesus by faith. Now, last point. What does that do to us? When we come by faith into this covenant with God, this relationship where God says, I will be your God. And we embrace that by faith. What does that do to us? Look, at, um, look with me at verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Look at these two things. Humility, falling on his face, you know, that, that's a, a symbol of worship. Deep humility before God where he says, I don't deserve any of this. I can't win you over my life is a complete roller coaster. You have no much idea how much of a roller coaster it is. And you're just pouring promises on me. You're promising me a son. You're promising people and land and kings and nations. And he just falls down before God in deep humility. and says, I don't deserve any of this. And yet it's not the kind of humility where he's you know, beating himself up and like, oh, I'm such a useless bag of pathetic nothing. That, yeah, I do that. That's what I say. That's not what he's doing. He's on his face and He's laughing. He's deeply humble, and yet there's this joy, there's a playfulness in him, because he's like he's like, "My wife's 90, 90 wrinkly years old, and she's going to have a baby, and I'm 99 wrinkly years old." And, and uh, how amazing. And, and uh, it's seeing God's grace, seeing God's miraculous power, seeing God coming down and saying, "I want to lose my freedom and I want to be your God, and not just your God, I want to be the God of all the people who have your faith and all of your children." And he's amazed. Let me just tell you that when you believe the gospel, when you trust in Jesus uh, as a savior, that's the kind of life it creates in you, is a life of humility where we fall on our face before God and yet a life of joy where we're laughing and we're amazed because it's all good news, right? We're going to live in the earth with chickens and, you know, and uh, in God's presence face to face. And so uh, let me just assure you, you know, I started this by saying uh, with the McCainless quote that happiness is only real when it's shared. And that's true for God. God says my only happiness is real when it's shared with you, and uh, he invites you by faith to just receive it. So let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the covenant. We thank you for Jesus, the one who, in whom it's fulfilled. We pray that you would give us faith uh, to receive your love as we trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.